Well, good morning, church family. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, you're all at home. So if you are there and you have a Bible in your house, if you don't, the word is that the word, uh, God's word is on the internet. You can look it up on your computer. If you're watching this, then you have internet, so you should have access to it. You can follow along there, and we will be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Uh, we're going to look at verses 32 through 39. So again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. My name is Brian Alderman. I'm uh, the associate worship pastor here at Liberty, and I am excited to have the joy of bringing God's word to you this morning. Uh, it was about five months ago that the Alderman family celebrated Thanksgiving in Orlando, where I'm from. There's about 20 or 25 of us gathered around that table there. Uh, and that trip was really the beginning of a wild few weeks in, uh, in the Brian Alderman family, in my, uh, my immediate family's life. And it included uh, a graduation from Divinity School. It included a service of uh, ordination here at the church. Picked up my first full-time job here at the church. Uh, and then had to take a January Hebrew 4 class all in like three weeks. And it was just a wild ride through those first couple weeks of January. Uh, but anyway, back in November, when it was time for us to go, Kaylee, Eli, and I loaded up the Jeep and we got in and we hit the road and drove on down to Orlando like we always did. When we were down there, we went to a church service with around 3,000 other folks in the Metro Orlando area. We celebrated our family Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, made plans for future visits, and had good conversation just like we always did. And when it was time to go, we loaded up our respective vehicles and we went on our way. One brother to, uh, and his wife to Nashville, another brother to uh, North Carolina, and then of course me and, and my family back here to Chelsea, Alabama. Like we always did, we gathered together and then we scattered. That's just what families do. And speaking of that, for 10 Sundays out of this year, we, the church family here at Liberty Baptist, gathered on this physical campus. We hugged each other, we shook hands with each other, we shared our lives together, we drank coffee, used toilet paper, washed our hands once, maybe even twice throughout the morning, and, and really didn't think much of, of any of that. We just did what we always did. Gather, scatter. Because that's what church families do. It's hard to remember just how normal things were prior to the mess that was cast upon us when COVID-19 began making its spread through the United States. The coronavirus, as we call it, has changed the world. And, and though we're excited because the curve seems to be flattening, if not trending downward a little bit, questions about the future, both near and far, abound for our country, for our church, and even for our individual families. When are we going to be able to gather again? How many events are we going to miss? What does all this mean for sports? When will large group events resume? I mean, think about this. Family members have died and funerals were canceled or live streamed. Weddings, celebrations of new marriages were canceled or live streams, only allowing immediate family members to gather. Many in need of elective surgeries found their appointments canceled or postponed. And those who did have to go to the hospital during this time were separated from their family. Uh, they were told that, that they couldn't be together while they went through whatever sickness was going on. Some of us, if you're anything like me, then you warned your children in the midst of this. Don't you dare need to go to the hospital right now because if you do, you're going in by yourself. I can't come with you. Graduations were canceled. School was canceled, sort of. Gyms closed. Businesses closed or closing. Major organizations running out of money. 
layoffs, furloughs, loans, quarantine, stay-at-home orders, and fines. So many of you have experienced the pain and the suffering that accompanies these things firsthand. And though I can neither summarize fairly or take enough time to elaborate concisely to, to do justice to your pain and the struggle that we're all having, let me just tell you as one of your pastors at this staff that loves and cares about you, I'm sorry. Your church leaders are, are sorry. We grieve with you. We want to be here for you at least as much as we can over Zoom. And we do want, to know, want you to know that, that we love you. And yet here we are today. We've got breath in our lungs. We've got Christ Jesus, our Lord, in our hearts. And I have good news. The gospel has not changed. The tomb is still empty. Jesus is still the resurrected Lord. And we are still the children of our heavenly Father. Because of this, our mission as a church continues. See, even in these difficult times, we must press on because God's kingdom is still before us. This is the message of Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. So if you've got it in your Bibles, pull it on up and let us read this together. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 32. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners, and, and you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and an enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look into your word and as we study what it means in our lives, I just pray that you'll open our hearts to receive its truths. God, I pray that you'll help me, Lord, not to speak my words, but to speak your words and to encourage this congregation, this church family, this family of Liberty Baptist, and anyone else who's joining us, Lord, I pray that the end result of today would, that, would be that people would come to know you who don't already, and that those who do know you would resolve to press on in the midst of difficult situations. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for the opportunity to, to gather together online. Thanks for technology and for what it's allowed us to do. And we pray that you'll be with us here in this moment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen, wherever you are. All right, so um, we read through this passage and you're not being persecuted. At least I don't think you are. Most of us are probably not really actually suffering, but all of us are struggling. And I do hope that you can identify with or at least feel a little bit of the weight of what these Hebrew Christians were experiencing in their day. Let me paint a picture of the context for us real quick. See, earlier in their life as believers, uh, these brothers and sisters had endured what the Bible calls a hard struggle with sufferings. We're not entirely sure of what that meant specifically, but we believe that these sufferings came during an initial period of Roman persecution of Christians. 
So when Christianity began to grow around the Roman Empire, the, uh, the emperors and leaders and governors caught wind of it and they weren't happy about it. And so, you know, think 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, these believers are being persecuted. But immediately after that, a period of peace followed that initial persecution. And then Emperor Nero rose to power. And as he tightened his grip around the Roman Empire, the situation worsened. Persecutions broke out against the early church once again. The audience of Hebrews was on the verge of another persecution. And this time, they did not welcome it. I mean, haven't we suffered enough? When is the government going to leave us alone? I thought that following Jesus was supposed to make my life better and all it's done is make my life worse. Undoubtedly, times were difficult in this congregation. And while it may be difficult for us to imagine what exactly they were going through at that time, I'm sure that it would be difficult for them to imagine what we're going through in this present time. I mean, just at the end of the last chapter, the author of Hebrews told believers to not neglect gathering together. Make sure that you make it a priority to be in church. Well, pastor, what do we do when our gatherings literally endanger the physical health of our church and the world around us? What do we do when the difficult struggle comes upon us? The pastor who wrote Hebrews begins with the first point there on your sermon notes, the call to remember. Remember is a great Bible word that God constantly is tossing out to his people. Do you remember my instructions? Remember how faithful I've been to you. And if you're a parent, you understand this, right? Remember when I told you this? Remember when I showed you that? Uh, Remember when I waited up with you on the stormy night? Do you remember when God provided for us as a family? Specifically in our passage, the author wants them to remember and think back about their first persecution. Now, this seems a little counterintuitive, but it actually makes good sense. In order to look forward and press on in the midst of difficult circumstances, you have to look backward. In order to look forward, you have to look backward. Now, there are three things that he wants the believers to remember. The first one is their salvation. The second one is their struggle in those sufferings. And the third one is the attitude that carried them through. So we'll start with that first one. First, remember your salvation. The, uh, the phrase in the scripture passage here is, after you were enlightened. Let me ask you, do you remember when God came into your life and turned the lights on? Do you remember what it was like before that to live in the dark, to hide from God, to hide from his community and to isolate yourself? Do you remember what it was like to be weighed down with sin and with guilt? Now, I know that some of you watching this are there today, and I want you to know that God's light can shine into your life as well if you'll receive him. When he calls us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, it gives us cause for rejoicing and celebration. No more will our sins count against us at the judgment. No more will we die without a heavenly father and with only a fear of falling into the hands as a sinner in the hands of a righteous God. No pardon, no plea, and no expectation of mercy. But thanks be to God who gives us salvation through Jesus Christ. See, there is mercy for me and there is mercy for you. We sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So remember your salvation. 
Because ultimately, that's what matters. Life on earth is but a vapor. Life with the Lord or without Him in eternity is forever. So remember your salvation. But second, he wants them to remember their struggle. The struggle of this initial audience in the scriptures was twofold. Sometimes they were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And other times they were just companions, friends of those who were treated that same way. These believers were being persecuted for bearing Christ's name. And in the midst of it, whether it was them or their friend, they supported one another and held on to each other. Our struggles are different today. But nevertheless, that same encouragement remains. Think about the hard times that you have faced before. The, uh, the original language here gives us some insight onto why the author wants them to remember that persecution. The Greek word for, uh, for a hard struggle is athlesine. Okay, now you can kind of hear how we get our word athlete or athletic from that. God wants us to think of our struggles, both those in the past and those in the present, as a contest, a sort of an athletic competition that we come to. And this actually makes really good sense because he's not trying to make light of the struggle and say that it's, you know, as, as little of a deal, as inconsequential as a basketball game or a football game. But he wants to put those struggles in an eternal perspective. An athlete trains. Why? Because, because he's going to compete. And when he does, or when she does, they want to win. And if the training that they do is not difficult, well, then it's probably not worth it. Why go through the hard work? Because we want to win. For the sake of coming out with a victory, we labor and we strive. We want to be able to attack the contest with vigor and with knowledge and with skill. Because if we do, then our chances of winning are much better. As Christians, we, or at least I, are often pretty bad at this. We avoid trials like the plague, and for good reason. I mean, suffering is horrible. It's unnatural. We weren't meant to go through it. We're not supposed to enjoy it any more as Christians than anyone else. But listen, church, while we do not enjoy our struggles, we can rejoice in the midst of our struggles. We can choose to have joy in the midst of these things by putting them into perspective. Paul said it in Romans 8, 18. He said, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. I don't think the sufferings that we're facing right now are even worth comparing. It's not even apples to oranges. The comparison just falls apart because the glory of our future is so much greater than the suffering that we presently experience. Now let me pause here, because I know that some of you have endured unimaginable pain. Tragedies that you can't even express yet. I certainly don't want to experience it, and I don't even like to imagine it. I wish that I could just take it away. But know this, there is still greater hope for you in Jesus. God is not in the habit of wasting things, and your pain is no different. He will redeem it. I don't know how he's going to, but I know that he will. It's his promise. And he's going to use it to produce endurance in you. And in his hands, that endurance that he produces is going to give way to eternal life. So press on, church, because it will be worth it 
in the end. So, we've been told to remember our salvation. We've been told to remember our suffering. And the third thing that the author wants us to remember is their attitude. Now, this one hits me the hardest. I mean, God, if you are going to make me suffer, then won't you at least let me keep negative Nancy around while I do? At least let me be mad about it. Let me whine a little bit. Let me complain that, okay, all right, well, here we go, but forgive me, church. Let me complain that there's no toilet paper on the shelves. Let me complain that people are hoarding and that everyone's overreacting and that I'm the only sane person left on the planet. Let me just complain about it a little bit. But God says no. When the brothers and sisters of these early Christians and Hebrews were thrown into prison, those who were not sympathized with them, but then they go a step further. When the government came and took their possessions right out of their homes, perhaps even evicting them from their homes, whatever unfair treatment they received, they accepted it. How? With joy. Two questions pop into my mind immediately. Why and how? Why did they accept it with joy? And then, and then how did they accept it to joy? And the Bible speaks to this question as well. In Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter and John are uh, beaten at the hands of the Jewish council for preaching in the name of Jesus again. They're, this is now the second time that they've been dragged before them. Uh, they didn't back down during their trial. They said, yes, we are preaching the name of Jesus. And then they even went a step further and accused the council that was judging them. You guys are the ones that crucified Jesus. Uh, and so this is the second time that they've been beaten um, and punished for preaching in the name of Jesus. But in Acts 5.41, we read this amazing attitude that they have on their way out. Because after being flogged at the hands of the Sanhedrin, they walk out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. My goodness, how I long for this kind of attitude. God, give me this kind of response and willingness to, to suffer for your name. How hard would it be for, for you and for me to just surrender our possessions? I mean, could we even do it at all? I'm not even talking about the joy part right now. I'm just asking if we could do it. But then could we do it and accept it with joy? Could we rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. You know, I thank God that reports of liberty's kindness and togetherness of, of the way that you guys have shared and fellowshiped together, and the way that you're reaching out to one another has filled Chelsea. And I urge us, let's press into that. Let's keep going. Keep meeting those needs and keep reaching out to your neighbors and keep surrendering your property, whether that's money, time, talent, or treasure, like we say. Keep surrendering it for the sake of others. When it's taken from you against your will, the Bible still calls you to rejoice because you've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, This kind of attitude only happens one way. The Hebrews had it because the scripture tells us that they knew that they themselves had a better and an enduring possession. See, they weren't focused on dollar bills and cars and houses of brick and mortar. In the early days of Christianity, these believers were focused on something much more substantial. They focused on inheriting a home in the heavenly city. The one that was designed, and not just designed, but that was actually built up by God himself. This is the place where Jesus tells us, store up your 
possessions, your treasures here. Because moth and rust can't destroy them up here. And no thief can steal them up here. Ironically, the Bible calls us all, in summarizing, to look back so that we can look forward. Look back to a time when after you got saved, you were looking the most forward to that future with Jesus. To your heavenly home. Remember when you were more concerned about heavenly treasure than earthly treasure. And press on. Because it's going to be worth it in the end. Now the second major point that I've got for us here today is the call to endure. And this comes in verse 35. The author says, don't throw away your confidence pretty plainly. The word for uh, throw away here is apobalo in the Greek. We would use this word for like trashing stuff or for letting it go on the cheap. You know, toss it out or speaking of somebody's possession. Well, he really let that go. You know, he kind of just gave it away. To throw away your confidence in the Christian faith is to abandon both the central beliefs and promises of the Christian faith. This is not those doubts that we all struggle with from time to time. Instead, the author is challenging them with a passionate plea to not move on to something new or not revert to something old just because the current thing isn't really working out for you. Many have called this attitude giving up on God or falling away. Modern apostasy is a real thing. People from my generation, without a doubt, will recognize the names of, um, of Joshua Harris or um, Marty Sampson from, from Hillsong's worship team. These are examples of men who sadly have thrown away their confidence amid life's nagging questions and painful storms. And we should pray for their repentance and for their return. But in the midst of that, we also recall Jesus' parable of the soils. When the thorns of life arise, such as a global pandemic like the one that we're experiencing now, do we lose our confidence in God's word and make for the next best thing? During these times, do we bow before the altar of political promise more than we look to God? Or do we bow before modern medicine and science more than we look to God, who is our living hope? It's during these times that we have to answer that extremely important question, is Christ really enough? You were so confident at first. God's word commands us, don't throw away that confidence. No, hold on to it. Because the promise is that such confidence has a great reward. But in order to hold on to that confidence, we need endurance. Endurance is that ability to stand in. The Greek word there is hupomeno, okay? Uh, it's, like, it's like remaining and doing so crazy well, uh, standing fast, so to speak. And the reason why is that so after we have done God's will, we may receive what was promised. Speaking of standing in or standing fast, I saw a picture this week of a storm room in the center of a slab house in Mississippi. Now, Easter's tornadoes ripped through the area and they absolutely destroyed this house. Everything but the storm room was totally demolished. The Greek word that we used earlier, apobalo, that would make a good word for it. It was thrown away. But the storm room had endurance. When the storm came shaking and tearing and destroying all around, this room stood fast. It endured. And how did it do that? Because it was grounded. 
The storm room was built before the storm in order to weather the storm to stand in the midst of the storm. My preaching professor said it this way, and I love this. He said, you don't learn how to walk in the dark. You learn how to walk in the light so that when the darkness comes, you can walk by faith and not by sight. By enduring, we gain two things. First of all, we accomplish God's will. And though I believe God has created every one of us uniquely and each one of us has a unique purpose, God's word tells us that at the end of the day, he's got a will for every single one of our lives. Just one thing. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would look more like Jesus every day of your life. That endurance accomplishes God's will by forming our character and making us look more like Jesus. But second, in addition to accomplishing God's will, we also receive what was promised. Christian, let me tell you today, your faith is neither aimless or empty. It comes loaded with a promise. And what is that promise? Well, it is the hope of every believer, the return of Jesus, or Jesus' return. And this is point three on your sermon notes if you're still hanging out with me there. The hope of every believer, Jesus' return. It's not only his return, but it's the reward of all of those who have wanted and waited for that return. The Bible does everything that it can here in this next part to ensure that you know that Jesus is going to return soon. Four Greek words are spent across a precious little bit of paper. We might translate it something like, yet in a very short little while, or yet in a teeny tiny little bit of time. The emphasis is on, it's not far away. And the promise of God is that Jesus will return. And when he does, he will set the world to right. Now, I know that many of us lift up the, uh, come on back, Jesus, but wait until I blank. Whether that's marriage or get to live a little bit more life or have a baby or get to experience graduation. I mean, I said this, things like this when I was growing up. And let me just tell you, I, I wish, I wish that I could take it back. I remember on Kaylee and I's wedding day in January of last year, once I got to the front of the altar right here in this church, it felt like an eternity before those doors in the back opened up. All of her friends walked in real slowly, and then all of my friends walked in real slowly. And when I finally saw those doors open wide, and there she was, the woman who was going to be my wife, and I thought, wow, what an amazing reality. Now, can you imagine if she or I would have held the whole thing up I mean, if she would have texted me and said like, babe, I'm sorry, I just really can't get my eyeliner right. Can we just call this thing off and maybe we'll come back and do it some other time? Or if I would have texted her standing here at the front of the altar and been, been like, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. Like, hey, let me go get some Chick-fil-A and then we'll come back and, you know, we'll get around to this wedding business eventually. But let's just put it off for a little while longer so that I can go and meet my, uh, my hunger. Church, sometimes we treat the return of the Lord just the same way. And let me tell you, our lack of desire for the Lord's return reveals that our spiritual stomachs are stuffed with the world's garbage. We've got shallow appetite. And I get it. I've been there. I look around today and, and it's much easier to say in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, Jesus, come quickly. But when things get back to normal and life gets all good again, what will it take for us to still desire the Lord's 
coming. The truth is, whether we like it or not, Jesus is coming back. And the question that we have to answer is, does our attitude reflect an unprepared posture? We need to pray, change our hearts, Lord, and start with mine. Start with me. I don't know when you're coming, but I know that it's closer today than it was yesterday. And whether I live to age 30 or age 90, you're going to hear me saying the same thing. It's closer today than it was yesterday. People get ready because Jesus is coming soon. As church, let our prayer be like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be a church that's ready for you. Point number four is that there are two ways to respond to all of this. And they're presented in verses 38 and 39. The Lord says, My righteous one will live by faith, but if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. So the two ways to respond are that you can have faith and be saved, or you can shrink back and be destroyed. Well, tell it like it is, pastor. But think about this. Faith is everything to the believer. If you take a believer and you subtract faith from him, that makes him an unbeliever, a non-believer. Immediately after our passage, the author of Hebrews is going to launch into a description and demonstration of faith that's not paralleled in any literature, whether ancient or modern. We call it the hall of faith. And from Abel to Abraham and Joshua to Jephthah and from Moses to David, the Bible's heroes are celebrated as those who possessed faith, which the author tells us is the reality of what they hoped for and the proof of what they could not see. These brothers and sisters pressed on through much worse than pandemic. They endured through torture, mockings, imprisonments, and death because they knew that their hope was not in this life but it was in the resurrection. And God tells us that they were approved even though in this life they didn't get what they were promised. They didn't get it because God had a bigger plan to include your name in that story. He had a bigger plan to include my name in that story. That's what we're told in Hebrews 11.40. So you tell me how this sounds. By faith, In the midst of a worldwide pandemic, Liberty Baptist Church pressed on and they embraced that call to make disciples with greater passion than they had ever known. By faith, the saints in Chelsea, Alabama endured sickness and quarantine with a a gentle peace, a quiet confidence in God that won their neighbors and co-workers to salvation. By faith, they pressed into prayer into an attitude that graciously accepted the government's limitations because they were looking forward to their great reward, which was not a life without struggle, but life after death. Not a life without quarantine, but life eternal in the presence of King Jesus. And yes, there is that unnerving reminder that if we draw back, he has no pleasure in us. And we'll be destroyed. But we're confident of better things for you, Liberty Baptist. Your pastors, your staff, your life group leaders, your teachers, we are confident of better things for you. Verse 39 says it. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and are saved. By faith, we will press on. And should it get worse, should the day come when 
Coronavirus is over, but persecution falls upon us. By faith, we're going to press on through that too. Should sickness abound again and death come even closer to us than it has now, by faith, we're going to press on through that too. We don't really have another option, but we don't need one because this is the one that we need. Should they come and rob us of our possessions, by faith, we will press on. Should they mistreat us, mock us, make fun of us and take our stuff, then by faith, we will press on. How? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. You know, for the joy that was set before him and that lay before him, he endured the cross. You want to talk about suffering? Talk about the cross. Despising the shame and now he is seated at the right hand of God, glorified and on high forever. We have nothing else to look forward to, only this. Child of God, believe God's word because God's goodness is your future. There is a promise of something new and God tells about it at the end of his word through his servant John. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the new city, the, uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and he himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write this down because these words are faithful and true. And then he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give freely to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Church, this is your future. By faith, press on. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that today you have given us the joy of hearing your word. And we pray, we pray, Lord, that by faith you'll help us to press on. Help us to remember our attitude that we need to have because we've been given a salvation that's greater than any struggle we will experience. Help us to endure in the midst of sickness and struggle. Help us to look forward to this new city that you've promised us and to a life without grief, without crying, without pain, and without death. We worship you, Lord, today because you have conquered. And so, Lord, help us now to press on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being with us today. I just want to invite you that uh, if you have not at any point in your life made a decision to follow Jesus with your life, to have a relationship with him, then I want to encourage you to email our pastor, tcox at lbcchelsea.com. Just send him an email and tell him that, that you want to know more about Jesus or um, church, if, if, if any of you have a prayer need or a concern, something that you're walking through, if this message has challenged you that you need to take your next step, whether that's rededicating your life or coming for baptism or even joining the, the church during this weird season, send an email to that address that's on your screen right now 
and allow us to reach back out to you and get in touch with you. Hey, we love you and we're praying for you in the midst of a crazy world. But remember, church, at the end of the day, the glory of our future is not even worth comparing to the suffering in our present. By faith, press on.